Good morning. I was uh, reading this week uh, about a woman who was having one of those nightmare travel days that some of us experience and all of us fear. She was, after a week being gone, she was trying to get home um, to see her daughter perform. Uh, Her daughter has special needs, and she was trying to get home to see her daughter perform at the end of a week of camp that her daughter had been at. And, um, but was having just all sorts of bad luck getting home because of weather problems and because of maintenance issues. Uh, she had flight after flight after flight that got delayed, they got canceled. Um, finally, it was the last, her last opportunity, last flight of the day um, to get home, and she was on the standby list. But she was number eight on the list. And so she knew that her chances of getting on this last flight were not very good. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in one of these situations before, but you almost, you reach this point of, like, uh, quiet desperation where you just, you can't stand any more time in an airport. You're, you're almost willing to get on that plane in the midst of a thunderstorm or with maintenance issues. Just get me out of this airport, whatever it takes. And so she had reached that point of quiet desperation and um, she was in the Atlanta airport where all good intentions go to die. And um, I was actually reading this story delayed in the Atlanta airport. Um, but she, she, so she, she was number eight on the list. And so the, the plane started boarding and they had seven empty seats on the plane. So seven uh, other passengers on standby were able to get on the plane, but she was left on the outside looking in, and she started making arrangements for a hotel room that night, knowing that she wasn't going to be able to get home. Well, they closed the gate. The airplane was getting ready to leave, but it didn't. It it stayed there for several minutes, and before long, someone came back out and opened the door once again and and said, we've actually been able to, to locate an additional seat on the plane just for you so that you can make your way home this evening. And what she discovered was the CEO of the airline happened to be on that flight. And he had discovered this woman's story and had heard about her difficult day that she'd had trying to get home and had given up his seat. He was given a seat in the cockpit, a jump seat in the cockpit, and, uh, and he gave her uh, his seat so that she could get home. And I read that story, and it's, it's a cool story, But I I read that story trying to imagine what that conversation went like uh, between the CEO and the flight attendant. The CEO was just dressed in ordinary clothes. He was actually just on his way uh, to a family vacation. Um, But I I kind of imagine how this conversation went, you know. uh, Stewardess, I I saw several people waiting outside on standby. Were uh, Were all those people able to get on this plane? Well, most of them were, sir, but we had one that wasn't able to make it, unfortunately. Um, oh, well, that, that's too bad. Here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to place me up in the cockpit with the pilots, okay? Just sit me up there with the, in the cockpit with the pilots. She can have my seat, um, and then we'll all be able to get on this flight. I, I kind of imagine the stewardess, as she looked at this man who she'd never seen before, sir, I'm not sure who you think you are, but... You know, we don't just allow uh, customers to sit up with the pilots. You know, especially nowadays, they kind of frown on that sort of thing, just going up with the pilots. Well, would it make any difference if I were the CEO of this airline? 
Well, yeah, it turns out that would make quite a bit of difference in this whole conversation. But, but the question, who do you think you are? That's the question I want to think about today. That's the question I want to talk about today. Who do you think you are? What gives you the right to make a request like this? It's a good question. It's an important question during certain, certain circumstances in our lives. Sometimes in our lives, we're justified asking the, that question, aren't we? Like if someone decides to harm us or decides to harm our families, our reputation, without cause, we may be justified in asking the question, who do you think you are? What, what gives you the right to do that? Or when we're forced to deal with the aftermath of someone else's very foolish and selfish decision, and we have to pick up the pieces, we may be justified in asking the question, just who do you think you are anyway? What gives you the right? When someone decides to exercise their power at the expense of our freedom, we might be justified in asking the question, who do you think you are? Or when you're at Hackett's Hot Wings and you're sharing 20 wings and the other person decides to eat 11, leaving you with only 9, you might be justified. Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? There are, there are certain times where this is appropriate. There are certain times when this is inappropriate. It might be inappropriate to ask this question of a police officer who's just pulled you over. Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? There are some times when it's appropriate, sometimes when it's inappropriate, and it, it kind of depends on who is on the other end of this question. If my, I w- I've just been gone for the past week, and I, I got home uh, late Friday night after being delayed yet again in Atlanta. Um, I, got, I got back late Friday night. Uh, yesterday morning, I woke up. My wife says, you know, we, we probably need to mow the lawn. And, I, and so, very shortly thereafter, I headed out, put on my work clothes, and I proceeded to mow the lawn. But if someone were to pull up, just some stranger, were to pull up along the side of the road, get out of their car, and say, hey, you know what? I noticed your grass is a little bit high. I think you might need to mow your lawn. If this were just a complete stranger, I might respond with some version of, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? There are moments when this question is appropriate and moments when this question is inappropriate. There are moments when this question, who do you think you are, is actually the first step towards disobedience. Um, My daughter, Addie, is like a sponge. She picks up everything, um, especially here at church. And, you know, it's kind of our family tradition. We come home from church at lunch. I kind of quiz the kids. What did you learn at church today? And, you know, my son, my son is like, well, I learned how to make a paper airplane, you know. But my... My daughter, she'll, she'll tell me in, in exquisite detail everything that she learned um, at church that morning. And several months ago, they had learned about honor. Um, that was kind of the big idea um, at church that Sunday was honor, um, specifically honoring your father and mother. And so later on that afternoon, it was time to, for another family tradition every Sunday where we just kind of clean up the house a little bit. And I told her, I said, Addie, you need to go into your room. You need to clean up. And at that moment, she gets completely dramatic and beside herself. This isn't fair. So I, just, I, I want this to be a lazy day. And I said, well, honey, remember what you learned at church this morning? You learned all about honor at church this morning. She said, yes, and daddy, you're just not honoring me right now. <laughs> and at that moment, we had to kind of recalibrate what the true nature of our relationship really was. You see, she wasn't... She wasn't saying this in direct words, but she was saying it in her actions. Daddy, who do you think you are? I've got better things to do. A lot of times this question is the first question asked in disobedience. Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? 
This is the question that is on the lips of the religious leaders in our text today. It's a story that's told in, all, in, in three of the four Gospels. I'm going to focus on the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and I'm going to be reading fair, a, a fair amount this morning. So if you want to follow along with me in your text, I'd welcome you to do that. It's in Matthew chapter 21, and I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Matthew 21, starting in verse 23, here's what it says. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, and here's what they asked. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? In other words, what they're asking is, who do you think you are? Who gave you the right? Let me give you a little bit of the context for this question. Jesus had recently, not very long before this, he had come into the temple area. And in a very bold, very aggressive move, a move that would have gotten just about anyone in a significant amount of trouble, Jesus drives out all of those who had turned the temple into a shopping mall area, all the money changers. He flips over their tables. He drives them out of the temple area, quoting scripture while he's doing it. Have you not heard that my house will be a house of prayer for the nations? Okay, this is a move that will draw some attention to yourself and not necessarily positive attention. And now in this text, Jesus is back in the temple courts, those same temple courts, and he's teaching. The Gospel of Luke, when Luke tells this story, he adds this one little tidbit of information. He says not only was Jesus teaching, he was also preaching the Gospel. Now, who is the Gospel about? The Gospel is about Jesus. So Jesus is back in the temple courts preaching about himself and about his kingdom. And this was just the type of move that could get you arrested and maybe even worse. Now, as I said last week, if you were here last week, this was a time during Jesus' life when Jesus was already attracting a lot of attention to himself. And there was this conflict that was bubbling over between himself and the leaders of the Jewish people. The leaders, the religious leaders in Jerusalem saw Jesus as a threat, a dangerous threat to their traditions, but more importantly, to their own power. And the more popular Jesus became, the more dangerous he also became to them. And so they proceed to ask Jesus a series of questions. But these questions are designed with this specific intent. They want to trap Jesus. They ask him these questions trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself, trying to outsmart Jesus. And this is the first in those series of questions. Who gave you this authority? Who gave you the right? Who do you think you are? And listen, this wasn't necessarily an inappropriate question for them to be asking in this moment. Some guy, he comes into the temple, he starts turning over tables, starts preaching about himself. I mean, this is not necessarily an inappropriate thing to ask, who do you think you are doing all of these things? But as Jesus begins to answer them, it becomes very clear, very quickly, that these religious leaders are in the same position as that flight attendant asking the question of her CEO. And these questions are nothing more than a justification for their own persistent disobedience. Jesus answered them in a way that's very typical for Jesus. He answers their question by giving them another question of his own. And Jesus says in verse 24, he says, I will ask you, one question. And if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, he's talking about John the Baptist. John's baptism, where did it come from? 
Was it from heaven or was it of human origin? Now, this was a brilliant question from Jesus. Because John the Baptist, at this point, John the Baptist had already been killed. He had actually been beheaded by the king. And so John the Baptist was, was very popular in, in, in that time period, especially because he had suffered this martyrdom. And he was very popular with the people. And Jesus had come to be associated with John the Baptist because, of course, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So Jesus asked the religious leaders, what about John? Where did his authority come from? Did it come from heaven or did it come from earth? And the religious leaders don't know how to respond. What comes next is actually kind of funny. Jesus asks them this question, and these very dignified, very self-righteous religious leaders, they gather around in a holy huddle and say, well, what do we do with this? How do we answer this question? And they, they discussed it among themselves, and they, they said, if we say it's from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? And they didn't believe John the Baptist. But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. They have a dilemma. They don't know how to answer. So they answer Jesus, we don't know. Not sure. Then Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So he doesn't he doesn't give them a direct answer to their question. Instead, what comes next in this passage is he gives them two parables. He responds to their question by giving two parables. And Jesus' parables in the Gospels always have this way of getting to the most fundamental issue. That's what Jesus' parables do. They, They bypass all of the bad questions that we might be asking in order to get at the most important question, to address the heart to address the motivations, to address what the kingdom is really all about. And so he gives these two parables. The first parable that Jesus gives might be one of the most um, easily understood parables in all the Gospels. Matter of fact, you can, you can have your children sit down and read this parable, and your children will know pretty clearly exactly the point that Jesus is saying. It's a parable about a, a father giving chores to his children. Okay, And here's what it says. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and he said, son, go and work for me today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? I love the simplicity of that question. It's so clear. And the the crowd that's gathered, the first, obviously, the first one did what the father wanted. Obedience isn't just a matter of talk. Obedience is a matter of action. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. The teachers and the leaders of the people were like that brother who had acknowledged, he acknowledged the authority of the father, but they acknowledged the authority of the father in word only. They were like that son who passively, aggressively told the father everything that he wanted to hear, but then proceeded to do what they wanted anyway. And in their action or in their lack of obedience, in their rejection of the father's instructions, what they were essentially saying was, who does this guy think he is? I've got better things to do with my time. But the very people that these leaders had rejected, the very people that they despised, the tax collectors, the sinners, they were going to enter the kingdom ahead of them 
because they responded with obedience and repentance. And I've got to believe that James was thinking about this very short parable when he would later on write the words in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, unaccompanied by action, is dead. Faith doesn't consist in saying the right things. Faith doesn't consist in looking the right way. Faith that is living faith demonstrates itself in repentance and a changed life submitted to God. And listen, those of us who spend a lot of time in church run the risk of being just like that brother in this parable. We know all the right answers. We say all the right things. We look the right way. But we've been avoiding or neglecting taking that action in our lives that we know God is calling us to respond in obedience to. We've, we've allowed our talk to become a substitute for action. Because we know all the right answers, we know all the right things to say. Jesus isn't done here. If this first parable was kind of a jab to the face, the second parable that he gives is more like an uppercut. And he he goes on to say this, verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, And build a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the exact same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? I love the fact that now Jesus is asking them questions. And they can't resist. they just like, oh, we've got to prove to him that we know what we're talking about. So they, they answer Jesus here. They say, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, both of these parables mention a vineyard. Now, to those of us reading this passage today, that might seem like um, just a, a rather meaningless or small detail in the text. But to the people who heard these parables the first time, the mention of a vineyard might be the most important detail in the text. Because going back to the Old Testament, several different places in the Old Testament, especially in a passage like Isaiah chapter 5, God compared his people, his treasured possession, he compared them to a vineyard. They were his vineyard. And so it's clear when Jesus is mentioning a vineyard in these passages, he's talking about God's people and the workers of the vineyard. The workers of the vineyard were very clearly the leaders of the people, the very people who had been asking Jesus to explain himself. Israel's leaders, again, if you look back in the Old Testament, the leaders of the nation of Israel had this very long and very ugly history of persecuting and even killing the very people that God had sent to them. 
The Old Testament is filled with stories of men who were sent from God to his people, but the people, and especially their leaders, turned their back on them. And rather than listening to them, they persecuted them, even killing them at times. And so with this story, this parable, Jesus is essentially saying this. He's saying to these leaders that have been asking him to explain himself. He's saying, blood is on your hands. Just like all of the people that came before you, you have rejected God's messengers, only you're worse. Because in your stubborn disobedience, you're now rejecting the beloved son. So, just to recap, these religious leaders had asked Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus responds by telling them exactly who he believed they were. Disobedient sons, rebellious murderers, and also kind of stupid, too. And it's not surprising, then, that by the time we reach the end of the text, these leaders are so furious. These leaders are so offended. They understand clearly, he's talking about us. And they're so angry that they start looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus. Here's how Jesus closes out this section in verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I I, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So Jesus asks, have have you not heard it said? And the answer to that was clearly yes. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 118, a text that we heard earlier in worship. And this this psalm had been recited, or more accurately, it had been sung as a song for literally generations. As the Jews would go to worship, they would sing this song. The religious leaders had heard this passage. They would probably even sung this passage that very day. And so what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you've heard it said But what I want you to know is that song is about me. That song that we've been singing for generations, that's about me. I am that stone that the builders rejected. The stone which has now become the cornerstone on which everything else is built and which holds everything else together. I am the only place that I will occupy as the sinner. You want to know who I am or what authority I have? That's it. I am the chief cornerstone. Rejected by men. Now the question is, how do these parables intersect with our lives today? It's a question I asked all week this week as I was reading and studying these parables. What is the connection between these two parables that Jesus gives to the religious leaders? How do they intersect with or connect with our lives today? And and I came to this conclusion. I think that these parables present us with a very, very basic choice. And it's the choice, really, that is always presented to us by the gospel. It's the choice of rebellion versus submission. Rebellion versus submission. The problem with the religious leaders is that they were convinced, they were absolutely sure that they knew better than Jesus. Jesus owed them an explanation. The first question of disobedience is always, What gives you the right? Who do you think you are? 
It's the same question that's been asked all the way back, going back to the Garden of Eden. Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? It's the first question asked in disobedience. And it's a question that I have asked of Jesus far too many times in my life. I, know, I, I read what Jesus has said. I see what he's done. I know what he asks or requires of me. And rather than submitting, rather than surrendering to his will, my first impulse is to ask, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? I assume that Jesus owes me an explanation before I submit to him in obedience. When really all it is is my own pride keeping me from submitting to God's purposes in my life. And instead of obedience, I'm just like that son that says, I've got better things to you. Who do you think you are? And the end result of rebellion is always destruction. Jesus makes that clear in this passage. On the other hand, you have the submission of the tax collectors. You have the submission and the obedience of the sinners. Those who were clearly not perfect. They didn't have life all figured out. They've made their mistakes, some of them spectacular mistakes. They are broken, but they've gotten this one thing right. They understood their desperate need for grace. They understood their desperate need for forgiveness, and grace is only received at the other end of surrender. Grace is only received at the other end of surrender. This, these two parables present us with a very basic choice. It is the choice between rebellion and submission. Rebellion ultimately leads to judgment, while submission leads to fruitfulness and grace. This same passage, Psalm 118, that's a very important passage in the New Testament. It's quoted several different times. Peter quotes from Psalm 118 in 1 Peter, but he quotes from this passage with a little bit different emphasis in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read this section to you, starting in verse 4 of 1 Peter 2. He says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Last year, about this time, I was getting back from a trip um, through Europe. We went to Turkey and Greece and, and Italy, and it was a fantastic trip. We tried to We tried to go to as many of the cities of the New Testament as possible to kind of see where Paul went on his missionary journeys. So we went to places like Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica. It was a fantastic trip. Um, But one of the places that we went to was Philippi. And in the city of Philippi, there still is to this day a a very large basilica in the city. And, And our tour guide was giving us kind of an architectural history lesson as we were looking at this basilica. She said, as you look at this basilica, you can see the three different civilizations that pass through uh, Philippi. You have the Greek, and then the Roman, and then finally the Christian civilizations. And you could tell the difference according to the architecture. Greek architecture uses these massive, you've seen them before, these massive white marble slabs. That's Greek architecture. But right on top of that, you have Roman architecture. They used, they invented concrete, so they liked to use it a lot. And so they had these very modern-looking red bricks that were uh, brought together with concrete. And you could see that on top of the Greek architecture. And then on top of that, you have Christian architecture, which is called rubble masonry. 
And what the Christians did when they came into a, a city is they, they used whatever was at hand. And so they would use these discarded rocks and stones that were laying around, and they would bring these dis, this discarded rubble, and they would build their churches out of that. And I, I saw that, and I listened to that, and I'm like, well, that's still how the church is being built today, isn't it? That's still how the church is being built today. Those who have submitted to Christ, the broken, the discarded, the ignored, are reclaimed, redeemed, repurposed, are given a new hope, are given a new future, are given a new purpose, brought together upon the chief cornerstone who is also rejected by men and built into the house of God. Living stones. This is how it's always been in the kingdom, and this is, this is how it's always going to be in the kingdom. So the question is, how will you and I respond? In our brokenness, in our lostness, in our rebellion. We're given this opportunity to be picked up and repurposed and to be built into the very household of God. Each one of us, a part of this patchwork, rubble masonry built together on the chief cornerstone, how will we respond? When our master calls us, when our master bids us to come, how will we respond?